Hello, this is Dan Murphy, and you're listening to the Don't Change Much podcast, brought to you by the Canadian Men's Health Foundation. In this episode of the show, we catch up with longtime broadcaster Dan O'Toole, half of one of the most popular shows in Canadian sports television history. We talk about the rise of his career from Canada to the bright lights of Los Angeles and how ultimately getting axed from his own TV show led him on a road to sobriety, self-discovery, and becoming the best version of himself. Manage your stress, not the other way around. For simple ways to improve your mental health, check out the free MindFit Toolkit from the Canadian Men's Health Foundation. Complete a self-assessment, access virtual counseling, and learn more about how anxiety, stress, or depression might be impacting your health. Go to menshealthfoundation.ca and access the MindFit Toolkit to start improving your mental wellness today. All right, it's great to be joined by a young man I knew 20-some years ago, working out of Robson and Burrard back then. I think it was a CTV building. Uh, after that point, one of our careers took off. One kind of stayed stagnant. Uh, Dan O'Toole is joining us here on the Don't Change Much podcast, and I will start with this, Dan. Boomsies, you're in your basement. You've had a career that I'm guessing you worked on some of the biggest sets there have been in sports broadcasting. So if five years ago, I would have said to you, you'll be soon podcasting from your basement and enjoying work more than you ever have, you would have said what? Uh, what happened? <laughs> That's the first thing I would have said. I would say, well, how did I go from in front of the cameras to my basement? I want to know what happened in the middle part there. So I would be full of questions. But yeah, to to realize working for the big machine for 20 years and thinking, okay, no, this, this is where I want to be. I'm happy. And then getting spit out by the machine and landing in a job in your own house and realizing, okay, I wasn't happy at all. I was just trying to fool myself into being happy. Now I'm happy spending more time with my family, not being a zombie, getting home at two in the morning every night. Now I'm happy. Well, we'll get to what brought you here, but talk about Boomsies and the content you're trying to provide now. Boomsies. First off, the name. So when I worked at Fox in LA, we had a producer by the name of Sean Keegan. And uh, when we'd be doing highlights or something, he'd say in our ears, if like LeBron, a big dunk, he'd be like, that's a Boomsies. Or there'd be a big goal. He's like, oh, Boomsies. So we started, Jay and I started using it on the show. And then... When it came time to name the podcast, I'm like, Boomsies is an all-encompassing word. So I told my bosses, they're like, that's perfect. And then you can use it in everyday life. You, you go on a date with someone or you, you you schedule a date. That's a Boomsies. You got a raise at work. Boomsies. Walk down the street. People yell it to me. So Boomsies is just kind of had no real vision for it. I just wanted to to talk about what was on my mind and kind of be a continuation of the Jay and Dan podcast. So this is kind of like a spinoff of that. This just keeps same characters in play that we had on that. And my bosses describe it as a description of small town living in Canada. I'm like, I'm fine with that. 
I just don't want people to think, okay, because a gambling company sponsoring, I'm just sitting here going through lines. I think I've talked about lines on a game once in the last year. Yeah. So I wanted more about that. I just wanted to, to be very human. That was my main goal. Do you have an ultimate guest? Is there a guest that you want to have on that show that you strive to have on at some point? Oh, Dano. I've got, a, I've got an ultimate guest list. Okay. Let me get it here. It's in my drawer. Top of the pack, Dan Murphy. Yeah, well. So here oopsies. we go. We've got Sidney Crosby, uh, Harry Connick Jr. First CD I ever owned was When Harry Met Sally, which is so weird because I would have been like 14 or 15. The first CD I ever owned was when, the Harry, when Harry Met Sally soundtrack. Still one of my favorites. I was playing it yesterday. Garth Orge, I've had on. Former Toronto Blue Jay. Seth Myers, my favorite late night show. Bob Cole, my favorite play-by-play voice. Justin Bieber, I'm a big fan of the Biebs. Theo Vaughn, David Spade, and Tim Heidecker, who's a comedian of Tim and Eric fame. So, yes, I literally have a list of wants. And I, I know people in the, the same vicinity as some of these. So, Dan, your take on this. I could get them through another person, but I want it to happen organically. I don't want to cheat. I want it to happen naturally that these people come on. Does that make sense? It makes sense. But you, I mean, you might, cheating might be a, a bad word for it, right? Like you, it's not bad to go through an intermediary to get someone like that on, like be it Sydney or especially a Harry Connick Jr. Like, I don't know how you go about organically just what you go stock his house. Well, hey. here's the thing. So I actually have an in there because one of the, the former head of Fox, they had Harry Connick Jr. as a guest host American Idol. So I have someone who knows the former head of Fox who knows Harry Connick Jr. So I could go through that route and get to him. Same with Sidney Crosby. I know a million people that know Sidney Crosby. Yeah. A buddy of mine who works for the NHLPA. He goes, oh, I talked to Sid uh, f- three times a week. I have a direct in, but mm-hmm. I don't want to take advantage of a friendship as well. So that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Bob Cole. You probably have an in for Bob Cole. Might have a number. Yeah. He might not answer. <laughs> he sees me calling, but I, I think I have a number. They didn't do a lot of West Coast games, so that's the one problem. That's true. Well, let's look, you just talked about Fox. Let's, I think my generation, I, I remember you from your first installment at TSN, right? With, uh, with Jay. But then the move was made to go down south and work for the big guns at Fox. Let's just go back there. Was that move scary? You were going out of your comfort zone of something you had done and done very well. Uh, you were very well known in this country and you were, you know, you're taking, I mean, obviously financially it was probably a great move, but you were taking a bit of a leap. Was that difficult? It was one of the biggest decisions I ever had to make in my life, but it was made a lot easier when I went and talked to one of my bosses at the time in Canada and I said to him, what should I do? And he said, Dan, this is a guy running the network. Dan, if my son was in the same position as you right now, I would say, take that offer, run, don't walk, run. He goes, this type of offer happens once in your life. So that that's what took out any doubt. There was no doubt left behind that I was making the right decision when we decided to go to Fox. But As far as the nerves and all that, I think they were lessened because we were thrown into a show that had about 35 people on camera. So we could just blend in. 
Like we had Carissa Thompson, who's still there. She works uh, the NFL on Fox. We had Andy Roddick on the show, Gary Payton, Donovan McNabb, Ephraim Salam, who's a former lineman, Gabe Kapler, who's now manager of the San Francisco Giants, Jay and I. Then there was other people that would come and go. CJ Nikowski was there as a baseball insider. So we knew that we not a lot was on our shoulders because we were just part of the background, essentially. So that's what eased our fears. And then once the show went to air and we tried to have that many people on a show for three hours a night live, we're like, what are we doing? <laughs> what, what are we doing here? Uh, it got whittled down. <laughs> it did. Uh. <laughs> In the end, Carissa, Jay, and I were the only ones remaining. Carissa never worked on the show. Everyone, their contracts ran out on the show. And then they saw that Jay and I, we had signed four-year deals. So they're like... Man, these guys still have a year left on their contract. Eh, why don't you go do a show in a closet? So they built us a little set in an actual closet that we did a show from for a year. And at no point did I feel proud of our product. Like we came back to Canada and we did a rehearsal and Jay turns to me after doing four years of shows in the United States. He turns to me and says, that felt better than any show we've done in the last four years. And it was a rehearsal. Because we had 20 producers working on our show. I still say this to this day. If they had airdropped our show from Canada into the States, it may have stood a shot. It may have stood a chance. Yeah. But instead, they're like, well, let's try this. Let's try this. Let's, let's do this. Why don't you guys do this? We never got to do our own show. And when we got back to Canada, we got to do our own show. And we got to the best version of it ever in the last four years. Well, I'll get to that in one second. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I do recall, though, that of that show, there was some critical acclaim for you and Jay. There was a lot of people that said that was the one part of the show that was, they were trying to do something fresh, something new. And yeah. that was kind of the voice that people were enjoying. And again, correct me if I'm wrong, I just remember reading things that that was the thing that at least the critics were saying, these guys work. Was there validation there, for the, the move? The American media did like us. The guys and men and women who wrote about American media did like us, which was a change for us because the, the people in Canadian media who wrote about it did not like us, never liked us for some reason. So it was a breath of fresh air. But I can't say I ever didn't believe those articles. I'm just like, it doesn't translate to eyeballs mm -hmm. because – we ran into the basic fact that there's how many channels now? Like thousands. So we were given business cards with Fox Sports 1 on them. And on the back was where it was on your cable provider. So that we were literally guerrilla marketers. If we went to a bar, they said, just hand that to the bartender. Maybe they'll leave the TV on. <laughs> and they'll be like, AT&T, it's channel 1,826. You weren't stumbling upon channel 1,826. So ESPN had such a head start on us and it's just tough to find new eyeballs in today's age of TV where there's so many choices. So the acclaim may have been there. No hate was being thrown at us, was, which was great, but it just never translated eyeballs. Was there personal growth professionally, do you think? 100%. We became better broadcasters mm -hmm. and we saw how broadcasters are treated outside of Canada. That was eye-opening. Like Murph, we had a makeup and wardrobe department. Our wardrobe department was five to 10 people. 
whose entire job was to make sure everyone was outfitted because their philosophy was, we want you showing up at work and all you're worried about is your job. That's all you're thinking about. We don't want you to worry about the tie you're going to wear, the suit you're going to wear, the shoes. So we would show up to our own dressing rooms. The suit hung up, freshly steamed, tie is there, belt already in the pants. Your your shoes are set out with the socks you're going to wear. It was something we had never seen before. They feed you when you show up there. They, they cater every single night. The stagehands would be about 10 people per show. And that's not even counting the, the camera people. While in Canada, that same show would have two people on the floor. That show in the States has 15 to 20. So it was just on another level, the production side of things. It was extremely eye-opening. And to show up at the Fox lot, it's a working Hollywood lot. Modern Family was shooting the entire time we're there. They're in a soundstage. We sat in for a Simpsons table read. The, The Simpsons writers and everything was animated there for that. You drive into the lot, it's palm trees. There's just to your left, there's a New York street where they they shoot tons of stuff on. It was just a really cool experience to see. It felt like you're really in TV. Not that not that in Canada, you don't feel in TV. You're just like sometimes it feels like putting things to air and we're we're using like wire and gum. Well, there you're like, this is it. This is everything I, I thought it would be. You don't think the parking lot in Scarborough is the same? <laughs> With coyotes, that parking lot in Scarborough, at least twice a year, we would get an email saying, watch out, coyotes are back. (laughs) My understanding, too, they made you whole. They treated you guys well on your way out, uh, and you come back to Canada. And I'm trying to think, there's not many, if any, in this sports industry that have their names on a show. You guys got that when you came yeah, back. All to we TSM. had to do was leave the country for four years. <laughs> you just realized. have to leave. You just have to leave and then you can come back and get your name on the show. Okay. So do you think that when you guys came back creatively, you started to do some of your, your best work? You've had some of your most fun? Hands down. I stand by this because it's exactly how I feel. Like you can see a top 10 online of, the top 10 Jan Dan bits that they played before we left to the States. Every clip in that makes me cringe. I had not become a good broadcaster or a good actor. I was horrible at both. And I was like playing a part. I wasn't myself. I know the person that was playing the role of a sports anchor in that, and that was not my voice. And then if once you throw in that, that LA experience, and then we come back to Canada and it's almost like we we let out a deep sigh and we're like, let's just have fun. So Jay and I, for those last four years, at least three times a week, we would make each other laugh so hard that we would be crying. And that's the that's the entire point of the show was we wanted to do a show in which we would go home and we would watch it or we, we would sit around with our buddies and watch it. And we achieved that. And it was so absurd and so fun that. Yeah, it was just, it was like lightning in a bottle that we captured it right from that first rehearsal where Jay turned to me and said those words where he's like, that felt better than all those shows. And I'm like, yeah, this is it. And yeah, it was a tremendous four years that last, the last four years of that show. And then, and then abruptly, how did I fire you when your name's on the show? <laughs> just cross out the one yeah, name. I know. 
It's what everyone says. They're like, but your name's on it. And I'm like, I don't, I don't understand it either. Business decision. I'm like, yeah, okay. Business decision. Sure. Let's go with that. So when it happened, obviously there's the forward facing, you know, Dan O'Toole that speaks to friends and, and, and such, and it happens and you probably put on a bit of a brave face. Oh no, I didn't. You didn't? No. How did you react? Uh, well, I got off the phone and then, um, told my kids typical reaction of a, what, how old were my oldest kids by then? They were like third at that time they would have been 13 and 10. It's like I told them, uh, we weren't getting pizza that night. They're like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I just, I had that job for a long time. They're like, yeah. So what's for dinner? Well, not pizza. <laughs> um, so what I did received phone calls. Cause I sent out a post on social media saying, Hey, I didn't know this was, this would be my last ever on camera. And it was actually, I look back and I'm like, even for a half ass on camera, it's better than, a lot of crap I see on TV right now. And I like wrote that in five, five minutes, put it to air. And I look back, I'm like, that's good. Considering it was 20% effort. So dealt with that, received phone calls from coworkers and friends and stuff, reaching out. And then when my kids got picked up by their mom on Friday, the typical schedule, that's when it was pedal to the metal I'm feeling sorry for myself, so I'm going to drink my face off. And I'm going to smoke my face off. So I dove in the red wine and the bourbon and the weed. And people kept showing up at my house. And I'm like, I was so out to lunch. I'm like, eh, people people coming over to party. No, in hindsight, they were making sure I didn't die. They were making sure I didn't do something dumb. So people kept showing up. They were trading shifts. And then, so that was on a Friday. Then on the Saturday, Onright shows up. I'm like, Onright, what are we doing? He's like, I don't know. Let's hang out all day. I'm like, this is amazing. No point did someone say, you know, you should slow down a little. They let me drive that train off the tracks. So then on Sunday, my it was Super Bowl Sunday. My buddy had a party. Show up at that. It, so that's the third day of the bender. And that night, I lost a, a fight with gravity. And woke up in the morning, I had a big gash on my head. Asked my buddy, I'm like, what the hell happened? He's like, well, we saw you starting to fall. Couldn't get there in time. Hit your head on the the fridge. So that's when I woke up on the Friday, the Monday after the Super Bowl. Looked at my phone. I felt something on my head. So I I turned the camera on. I'm like, how the hell do I have this on my head? And then I stared at the very real thought of, okay, for the last 22 years, I've had something to do at night. I've had my, my job to go to. I wouldn't get home till two in the morning. I wouldn't go to work till about nine at night. So those evening hours are taken care of. But I still, when I would get home and didn't have the kids, I would still get into weed, get into wine and all that. So I'm like, if I don't have anything to do and the kids aren't with me, this is going to be a train wreck. And that's where I said the words to myself. I said, I need help. And I said that to my, my close friends and family and they sprung into action. My cousin came all the way from Ottawa, which is three hours away from where I live, picked me up. They found me a rehab facility. I was in it two days later and that's where it started my journey to sobriety. And if I hadn't done that, I don't know where the hell I'd be. I don't know if I'd still be alive because I would be, I definitely wouldn't be employed because I would just be an angry drunk who felt the world betrayed me 
that the world did me wrong. No one wants to be hanging around with that person. No one wants to employ that person. So thank God I saw the light. Thank God I said, I need help because those are not easy words to say, but they're so much easier now to say when, when I look back at what I've been able to accomplish having said them. Had you ever thought those things just in your head? I need help before that. If you're yeah. just kind of you're just kind of thinking it to yourself and like at some point, maybe I should do this. And then this yeah. finally came to a head. Do you think like you've done that my before? My drinking and weed consumption, because my, uh, my ex-wife and I, we got separated with about a year left in my contract in LA. So I was kind of solo. I'd fly back to see the, the girls every three weeks. So I was living essentially a single life in LA for a year, which is when you're a parent. That's kind of like, that's not reality. I was not living in reality. So you go from being in a marriage where someone's like, well, should you really have another drink to, I've got no one telling me what to do. I've got no restrictions. I've got no one putting up a stop sign. I've got all green lights. Like I would go to Vegas once or twice a month. Pete Rose almost drove me to Vegas once. Pete Rose also worked on our show. He's like, oh, dad, I hear you're going to Vegas. You want to ride? And he drives a big Rolls Royce. And I'm like, no, I'm just going to go to the airport. This is the way I live. I'm just going to go to the airport, catch a flight. I showed up at the airport, no ticket. I was on a flight to Vegas in 30 minutes. Anyway, so I would, I would drink my face off in Vegas and just sit and gamble. People are like, oh, you must have partied. And I'm like, no, I drank and gambled. I'd stand at a craps table for 12 hours. That's what I did. I'm like, where's the joy in that? But your, your addict mind convinces you like, no, no, you're having fun. You're having fun. I, I could see the signs. And then when I got back to Canada, it continued here and definitely saw that I was on the wrong track, but I had convinced my mind. I had convinced myself, no, no, you're fine. You're, you're still functioning. The show is great. There are no problems here. And one of the strange things I asked someone my way into rehab was I was talking to a buddy. I'm like, yeah, first off, when I went into rehab, I called like 20, 30 people. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to rehab. Not one of them said, why? They're all like, good. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> Is no one going to let me in on this secret? So I was talking to one of my friends and I'm like, I don't know if I'm ever going to have fun again. I'm going to lose friends. He's like, hey, hang on. I have a buddy who just went through this former NHLer and he's eight months into his journey. He went to rehab. Talk to him. So I call him up. He gets on the speakerphone and I say, I don't know, I'm not going to have fun anymore. Why am I doing this? And he said, and this is what got me through rehab. This is what I still say to people considering sobriety now. I said, I'm not going to have fun anymore. He goes, Dan, you're about to experience life for the first time. He goes, you, that, nothing was fun about that. And I, I go back to that question. I asked him, I'm like, am I going to have fun again? And I asked myself that, what was fun about it? There was no fun being had. But the addict brain convinces you, no, no, you're having fun. Trust us here. You're having fun. These hangovers every day. This is fun. So I'm so glad that I got him on the phone and, and heard those words because rehab's not fun. So I'm sure that when this commenced, you had a million people reach out to you. Like when you lost your job and there's those three days and like people like me. And I just, I always think in situations, how would I want if this was me and I just thought, I'm just going to send a text. I'm not calling. I'm not going to make the guy not pick up the phone and leave a voice message. But you clearly had a good support group close to you. Who were those people that, 
that helped you the most in those initial days that you just said your your cousin came in from Ottawa, but what was the support group like for those those days getting to rehab and getting out of rehab? Well, the support law well, I mentioned how friends just kept popping up in my house because they wanted to keep me safe in those days after after being fired. What I can say about the support group is in recovery, it's like nothing I've ever experienced in my life. And I'm on I'm on a team that is better than any team. I've played team sports in baseball and hockey. My high school team didn't have a football team. I don't think I'd make it anyway. Look at the size of me. But everyone's rooting for each other. If you're on a team, in the back of your mind, you're seeing a guy get a hat trick or you see a, I was a goalie, other goalie getting a shutout. Are you really happy or are you like, man, that's going to take away from my playing time. But you tell people, oh, that's great. And if you're a pro, you're like, oh, I'm so happy you scored three goals when you're thinking, no, I wanted to score three goals. In recovery, all you're rooting for is someone to succeed. And the recovery community wants nothing from you. So many times in my life, well, you, you're the same. You're in a broadcast industry where someone always wants something from you. They just don't want to see you be happy. They want something. They want your time. Uh, they want your effort. They want to use your likeness or something. In recovery, they don't want any of that. They just want you to be happy and for you to succeed. So. I can't say enough about that group that I'm surrounded by now. And when I asked my buddy on the way into rehab, if I was going to lose friends, I have gained in the last two years, a stronger network of friends than I've had my entire life. Like I, I can go back to, like I still have buddies from high school. I have still buddies from elementary school that we, it's still like, we, we don't miss a beat, even if we haven't seen each other for five years. I have this new group of friends that I have told more that I have more faith in than people I've known for 30 years because they've got your back. Not that my other friends don't, but they just get it. Tell grown men every day when I get off the phone, it's like my kids don't even blink an eye. I'm on a speakerphone with a buddy. Love you, man. I said, love you too. And I'm like, I would never, ever have expected 47-year-old me to saying, I love you to other men daily. And it feels good. So, yeah, I can't say enough about it, Murph. It's just, it's just a cool feeling to know people have your back no matter what. So moving back to Canada made you the best version of your professional self, but getting fired made you the best version of yourself, period. Led to that. I'm putting that, can I put that on the Boomsies? Can I put that on the Boomsies tagline? Yes, 100%. I am the best version of myself. Now, I still have a lot of flaws. Like, I'll have bouts around the house where I'm dropping F-bomb after F-bomb. And then I, but I own it now. I'll go to the kids and I'll say, I dropped a lot of F-bombs. You know what? It feels better out than in. I say, get it out. I don't hide how I'm feeling. You'll never have to guess if I pissed off about something because it's on the surface but i deal with it and then it's on with the rest of the day before that stuff would just simmer and then oh let's throw some wine on that oh yeah you really are mad about that aren't you and it would just simmer and boil over now you actually face your feelings because when you are in active addiction you're numbing those feelings you're like oh no i'll just put this off this uh, there we go there's there's nothing wrong now let's just simmer in these wine juices when you have to face your feelings when you're sober because there's no numbing them and it's great it's hard maybe at first i still cry a lot and i found out 
I, I cried as a alcoholic and I cry as a sober person now. I just cry a lot. I don't know what that is, but it's so comical. My kids put on music that they know makes me cry. Oh, Holy Night, it's a banger. I love that song at Christmas. They'll They'll play it in the car in the middle of summer and look at me and wait till I cry during it. Like it's, I love having my emotions on my sleeve. It's, I guess that's a true sign of an Irishman. Well, no one's saying that there's not still going to be hardships in life and you're not going to still have barriers. And, but would you say it's just now you focus on what makes you happy? Oh, you focus on living a life that in the feels moment. kind of real in the moment. Yeah. Like being present. That That's my biggest thing is I am actually present now and there's no guilt. There's no shame. You're having direct conversations, looking them in the eye. You're listening to every word people are saying. And it's just great to walk around with your head held high because if you're uh, drinking a lot and you're going to parties and you're seeing friends all the time, there's always in the back of your mind like, oh, what did I do last time I saw them? Not, not that I was like belligerent or anything. I was always happy. It was just get too drunk. So now just to walk around with your head held high and to see people and know you did nothing wrong is sounds so stupid, but it it's a true feeling. And to walk around your own house, knowing your I always say my side of the street is clean. I try to live every day. Don't do anything to piss anyone off. And if you do piss anyone off, apologize for it so if you drop some f-bombs if you get yell about some dirty dishes in the sink just tell the kids yeah sorry i let the f-bomb fly it's all good feels good you should say one and then they yell one out i'm like yeah doesn't that feel good so yeah it's keeping your own side of the street clean is uh is a good motto to have in life if someone's listening right now and they're thinking oh maybe i should you know, at least get my drinking in check i'm not not to rehab maybe even not to that step but maybe just step back a little bit from what I'm doing. What advice would you give short of throwing yourself into a fridge head first? <laughs> you don't need rehab. That was just kind of, that was like sending me to training camp. You're like, okay, I know how to play hockey. I don't, hockey players don't need to go to training camp. They know how to play hockey, but no, it's to get back into the basics. I knew I would have known how to quit drinking but if I hadn't gone to rehab, I would have quit drinking for two weeks and then celebrated with, oh, I, I deserve a couple of big nights out. What I can say to people considering sobriety is try find one person who got sober and said, I ah, wish I hadn't done that. You won't find them. Not a single person will say, you know what I wish I hadn't done was get sober. And if you think you're going to lose friends, first off, you won't. Secondly, if you do, those aren't your friends. Those are drinking buddies that you've probably never had a meaningful, meaningful conversation in your life with. And if you think you need it to have fun, again, that's just your brain being tricked by booze and alcohol. I always say this, alcohol and weed, they have a great marketing department. Every movie, every show, you get home from work, oh man, I need to relax a little. Every show with the weed in it, oh man, I need to take the edge off. I need to smoke a little. What I found out, about weed, it gave me 99% of my anxiety. And as a buddy pointed, it goes, yeah, Dan, have you ever smoked a joint and felt your heart? It's beating through your chest. And I didn't realize that because if you wake and bake and then you got to walk around all day, you're like, I'm stoned. Now I got to try pretend I'm not stoned. 
And then you're in your head all day. I'm like, yeah, that would cause you some anxiety. So that was not a, not just taking out the alcohol, but I found taking out the weed did even more. Was there a, like you just mentioned anxiety, was there a mental health aspect of this too? Obviously, like clearly oh, you're in a great headspace now. 100%. What it was is probably undiagnosed depression at times. A lot of, like I've never had it classified, but yes, every person that has struggled with addiction has mental health problems. It's just when you throw gasoline on those problems, it just amplifies them. So when you take out all those vices, things get a hell of a lot easier. I just have to tell you that because guess what? Alcohol is a depressant. What do you do now to alleviate the stresses, everyday stress in your life is, do you, is there a fitness, nutrition, exercise? Love being out in the sun. When the sun is shining, my kids make fun of me because even in the middle of winter, I'll go hop on the deck and I'll just stand there smiling with the sun hitting my face. Get sun into your face. And I know that's tough at times in Vancouver, Murph. I lived there for a while. Boy, oh boy, I miss the sun. Seasonal depressional disorder. That is a real thing. I row every day now. I got a rower for the basement. So I like to be physically active and music is massive in my life. And just getting outside, just, I can't stress. And golf is also a major component. So when I was a junior member, I played a ton. And then from the, the ages of 20 to 45, I would play 10 times a year. And then I found sobriety and I'm like, I think I'm going to get into golf. And now I fell back in love with the sport. I just find it for your mental health and people are like, yeah, horrible for your mental health. <laughs> like making the, you're bad at golf jokes. I'm like, yeah, guess what? You're never making the tour. No one cares what your score is. And as long as you keep up with the people you're playing with, whatever, who cares? I'm outside playing golf and it's a Tuesday afternoon when other people are schlubbing at work. I'm just going to be happy and enjoy it. I made that, like, I remember I joined a golf course here in 2006 and I remember being angry and, you know, whatever, shooting, whatever, and leaving. And I was like, if I'm leaving this place in a worse mood than I came in, I'm not doing it right. Yeah. I should be leaving this course happy that I was outside and that I played golf, period. You could have moments of anger when you three putt and then, okay, I'm over it. But you should never be leaving that activity in a worse mood than you were showing up for it. A hundred percent. Sit down with the guys. Jeez, have a can of Coke, by the way, that is my drink of choice. Coke in bottles doesn't taste the same. So they carry cans of Coke at my course, I believe just for me. The name of the podcast is Don't Change Much. So for Dan O'Toole, what does that mean? Changing just a little bit. So yeah, don't change much. Just be easy on yourself. So many people put so many pressures on themselves. Be easy on yourself. That's a very easy thing to change. Love yourself more and realize if you're unhappy, buying something, getting a new girlfriend, leaving a marriage, going on a trip, if you're relying on those things to make you happy, nah, start with you. Once you are as happy as you think you'll be on vacation by walking to the post office, by going to pick up the kids, then look at the other things to maybe add to the happiness in your life. But don't go searching for happiness if you can't find it in day-to-day -day life. I know it's hard, but it's also hell, hella easy to find joy in the little things in your life. So you don't have to change much.
just start liking yourself more and be easier on yourself. Great to talk to you. So happy you're doing well and living life as the best version of yourself. And hopefully we can get out and play golf at some point. I'll even bring the towels. And Murph, thanks for being nice to someone you didn't have to even talk to. So you're always, you're always good in my books, Murph. For more helpful tips on improving your mental and physical health, please visit menshealthfoundation.ca and don'tchangemuch.ca. Thanks to everyone who listened and to those who have followed. If you haven't, hit the follow button. That way you'll never miss one of our podcasts and you'll be updated on future episodes.